Good. Good evening, everybody. Welcome. So, okay, so welcome to class two of the Fellowship of the Ring class, and we are going to be focusing mostly on Old Forest stuff tonight. Um, I do want to get to... Uh, I, I do want to get to... Um, the, uh, Tom Bombadil, of course. Uh, my goal is to get to Tom Bombadil and the Barrow White. If we can get that far, I'll be pretty happy. Um, I want to spend some time talking about the Old Forest and some more time talking about Goldberry, who I think is a, a, a major person who doesn't get nearly enough uh, uh, discussion time. Uh, generally. But I do want to start off with a few more things about hobbits before we quite get there, because I just sort of picking up on some of the things we were looking at last time, and especially as we go and begin to, to sort of transition out of the Shire, as the story moves um, moves outwards, which I think is a really important thing that um, that is sort of happening in this story. I mean, on the one hand, if you look at book one and book two of The Fellowship of the Ring, they seem well, certainly kind of geographically imbalanced, right? That is, it takes an entire book to get from the Shire to Rivendell, and then another book to get from Rivendell all the way down most of the way to Gondor. And, um, but, you know, this is, this is obviously a big deal. We begin in more than one way, sort of within the Shire world. We begin, you know, really sort of immersed in this. And I want to make sure that we're kind of looking around us, again, not just at the main character in the main story, but at this sort of this culture, this world. Um, and I think we get, there are two things that I want to start off with. I actually want to first start with the conspiracy. Um, I think the the conspiracy unmasked chapter is one of the clearest indications, one of the clearest examples of the kind of, uh, you know, new adventurous subculture in the Shire that we were talking about last time, which is clearly grown up around Bilbo. Um, if there's one line that I think is the most telling as far as how different um, these younger hobbits, not all younger hobbits, of course, but this, again, this subsuit of young, subset of younger hobbits, um, the, the difference of how they look at things compared to how their elders did. It would be what Mary says to them when they meet him again after meeting Farmer Maggot, uh, when he says, I see you've been having adventures, which is not quite fair without me. You know, just the idea of any hobbit adding, which was not quite fair, like, you know, feeling left out for not being involved in the adventures. We're in a totally different world now than we were before. Um, so uh, so I want to start looking at that. Uh, and and I, 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 we spent a lot of time on these things last time, so I don't want to spend too much time, but I did want to just touch on them. Um, and then after that, I, I, I want to go to Farmer Maggot uh, on our way to the Old Forest. So let me look, uh, uh, let me look just at uh, the conspiracy and my... my Favorite passage from the Conspiracy Unmasked. Again, as far as revealing some of these, some of these trends. Um, think as we read through this. Think about the kind of assumptions that, especially Frodo, is making here um, when they're beginning this conversation. Um, this is, of course, right after Merry and Pippin have revealed that they already know what he's planning to do and everything. Good heavens, said Frodo. I thought I had been both careful and clever. I don't know what Gandalf would say. Is all the Shire discussing my departure then? Oh no, said Mary. Don't worry about that. The secret won't keep for long, of course, but at present it is, I think, only known to us conspirators. After all, you must remember that we know you well, and are often with you. We can usually guess what you're thinking. I knew Bilbo, too. To tell you the truth, I had been watching you rather closely ever since he left. I thought you would go after him sooner or later. Indeed, I expected you to go sooner, and lately we have been very anxious. 
We have been terrified that you might give us the slip and go off suddenly all on your own like he did. Ever since this spring we have kept our eyes open and done a good deal of planning on our own account. You are not going to escape so easily. But I must go, said Frodo. It cannot be helped, dear friends. It is wretched for us all, but it's no use your trying to keep me. Since you have guessed so much, please help me and do not hinder me. You do not understand, said Pippin. You must go, and therefore we must too. Mary and I are coming with you. Sam is an excellent fellow, and would jump down a dragon's throat to save you, if he did not trip over his own feet. But you will need more than one companion in your dangerous adventure. So, what do you notice here? What do we see? Tell me what you, what, what, what you find striking, what you find revealing in this passage. What do we learn from this exchange? What do we learn about Frodo and his assumptions, as I was saying before? What do we, what do we learn about Merry and Pippin? Um, I feel like they kind of, one of the reasons I want to talk about this passage is I felt like Merry and Pippin themselves got uh, sort of a little bit shortchanged, and I'm going to unabashedly focus more on Sam uh, throughout most of our classes. But, uh, but, uh, but God, let's see, tell me what you notice here. Good. Nate, that's a really interesting, uh, that's a really interesting comment. Nate says that Frodo is not as uniquely adventurous as he thought. Um, that is, he knew that he was kind of deviant from Hobbit culture, and that desire, you know, that, that moment that we were looking at last time when he was suddenly filled with this desire to follow Bilbo, uh, you know, and, and, and almost ran down the lane, um, it's not as... It's not as unique uh, as he thinks. There are others who are hankering to go on adventures too, and he seems almost to have forgotten that. Um, yes, exactly, Dima. It sounds like Frodo was afraid they were going to stop him from going. That is, he expects resistance, right? He expects that, um, you know, when they and especially, of course, they sort of set it up that way, right? Where you know the way the, the way that Mary is talking about it. We've been terrified you might give us the slip and go off. Um, you know, we've kept our eyes open. It's you know, you're not going to escape so easily. He knows leaving the Shire. I mean, just going off like Bilbo. That's seriously strange. No sensible Hobbit would do that kind of a thing. Um, so what he does seem to expect, even I mean, he knows that Merry and Pippin are don't have the same values as you know Ted Sandyman or even Gaffer Gamgee. Um, so it's not like that's a shock to him, but yes, he does seem to uh, to think that that they are that they are going to stop him. And remember, there's a there's a kind of to. Okay, this is really dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway because I don't know how much time we'll get to talk about it when we get there. Uh, but to peek ahead at the very end of the Fellowship of the Ring, remember there's a kind of recapitulation of this moment. Um, in Parth Gallen, when they're trying to decide whether to go to Minas Tirith or to Mordor, um, and it's Pippin who says that they've got to stop Frodo. Um, you know, we can't let him go to Mordor. Um, we must stop him. So, I, you know, I, and again, obviously, that's a different kind of a situation. But, but, but anyway, that's what he expects here. He expects them to try to stop him, um, and. Instead, we find, and you know, he himself is surprised to find that they, uh, far from representing, trying to draw him back towards the the Hobbit mainstream, um, and you know, being digging in their heels and being resistant to the idea of him actually pulling a Bilbo and leaving. Instead, they're ready to jump on board. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yes, Sharon says it's a good thing that all the subversive hobbits uh, are on Frodo's side. Uh, yes, yes, it's true. That phrase is itself kind of delightful, isn't it? Just, just the the concept of subversive hobbit. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, excellent, Jeff. Uh, Jeff says, going back to Frodo's statement about how he felt hobbits to be stupid and dull, he's blind to the fact that others can be clever as well, and bold, as I would add to that as well. Um, you know, I don't think he's exactly shocked at the, 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 the sort of cleverness. Uh, well, okay, actually, no, I will give you that. He is shocked by the cleverness of the conspiracy, I think. That is, he can't believe that they've discovered as much as they have. They've been really resourceful. Um, but uh, but here it's their it's their boldness. He expects them to pull back, and they don't. They're 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 jumping up. They're jumping on board. Um, yeah, Trish, I agree. It is the opposite of how hobbits are described in the prologue, um, though. As you say, they're very matter-of-fact about going with Frodo on his adventure. I mean, I guess I, I love the the kind of the casualness, and I think deliberate casualness, of Pippin's phrase there at the end. You will need more than one companion in your dangerous adventure. Um, that is, he he even recognizes that it's dangerous. He's not. And again, here I would urge us to remember: think back to the Hobbit. Think back to Bilbo's, you know, struck by lightning, struck by lightning. You know, at, even at the mention of personal danger. Um, that's like mainstream hobbitry for you there. Um, and remember also, back in Chapter 2, Gandalf's reaction when Frodo says, well, I guess I have to leave the Shire. Um, you know, he's like, I didn't expect such an answer even from you. He didn't expect Frodo. Uh, Gandalf clearly thought better of Frodo. He didn't think he was going to be, you know, cringing there on the floor and saying, struck by lightning, but he does... Um, he still expresses surprise at how how boldly, how uh, resolutely, how confidently um, Frodo decides, though he's afraid, um, to go out. So yeah, I, th I think we can see a very similar thing uh, in Pippin and Merry there. Good, let's see, okay. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, let's see. Yeah, Nate, I think that that's a really good point, and I think it's one of the things that is happening here as we are moving towards, you know, into Buckland and towards the edge of the Shire. Nate says that Mary in particular seems to have a bigger picture of the world around him than Frodo expects. The Brandybucks are as adventurous as the Tooks, and as border folk are more aware of the outside world than many others. Um, yes, and I think that that's something that we see. It's something I certainly I want to look at um, with Farmer Maggot as we move into that in a second. Um, okay, maybe not a second minute anyway. Um, yes, yes, Giselle, it does seem that Sam has told them quite a bit about what's going on, um, and I suspect, um, yeah, I mean, he dried up after he was caught, we're told, um, but yes, they do, they are actually well informed, and that's an important thing, right, that when they are expressing their you know, their sort of calm bravery and their intention of going on, they're not just speaking in ignorance. Now, again, you'll remember um, once again, recklessly looking forward, um, Elrond will comment about how they don't really have any, how Merry and Pippin in particular, when they want to join the company, don't have any idea what they're really getting themselves in for. So again, it's their ignorance um, of the road in front of them that is emphasized, but they're not simply, they, they, they know already, they realize what Frodo has realized, which is that this is not just a there and back journey. Um, we can see them kind of thinking that what Frodo is going to do is pull a Bilbo, that he's going to go off like Bilbo did. They realize, though, 
just as Frodo realized that this is not that that's not what he's doing. He's not just going off on an adventure to see mountains and maybe find treasure or something like that. Um, they know about the enemy. Um, they know about the ring. Um, they know that they know that there is danger. So, um, so yeah. So I think that that's 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 definitely something that we can see. Um, yeah, and. And you know, and David, you mentioned that yeah, it's it's certainly true. The hobbits, all of them except Pippin. Pippin is not of age yet, but I, the, he's not exactly a minor either. I mean, he's twenty with twenty eight. I think Pippin is, um, and he, uh, twenty eight is. I mean, he's not, he is not of age. But I don't think that, I don't think exactly that thirty three is the Hobbit equivalent of like what eighteen is in American culture. Um, you know that like they can't even legally live on their own, or you know, uh, you know, they're they're not an adult in the eyes of the law. Um, they can't clearly. The one thing that they can't do is inherit property. They're not considered adults. Um, but again, I don't think that we are supposed to understand with sort of Hobbit aging. I don't think that we're supposed to understand um, teenagers and you know hobbits in their twenties to be actually juvenile physically. Um, I don't think it's simply that they are children longer. Um, it's just that they are not considered to be fully responsible adults until they turn thirty-three. Um, so, uh, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's anyway. That's that's just sort of my my general sense of that. So, no. I mean, I do. I think I do think that Pippin is able to live alone. I don't think he's living in his, uh, you know, like living in his in his parents' house or something like that. Um, you know, under their authority still directly as a child would be. Um, so, um, so yeah, Frodo does want to do everything alone. Uh, though again, there's clearly this element of 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 self sacrifice, and it's one of the sort of delightful things about the conspiracy chapter is you have this like upping the self-sacrifice stakes, right? Frodo's like, I have to go alone. Um, I have to break it to them somehow that I have to leave them all behind and go off so I can save them and, and, and the Shire. And they're like, well, we'll see your self-sacrifice and we'll, we'll, we'll raise your self-sacrifices. We will, you know, join with you and put ourselves into danger for your sake. Um, and, uh, and then they sort of finally, uh, finally win and he gives in. Um, Okay, good. You know, I I agree, Sarah. Sarah says that she thinks that Frodo is underestimating the strength of friendship and the character of his friends, not intentionally. And then Pippin seems to underestimate Sam a little bit, too, although he certainly holds him in a certain esteem. Yeah, I mean, I agree. that The way that he's praising Sam there at the end... Um, you know, Sam is an excellent fellow and would jump down a dragon's throat to save you. I mean, that's nice. Um... You know, if he doesn't trip over his own feet, he's teasing Sam, certainly. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's certainly teasing Sam. I'm not sure exactly how serious he is about uh, sort of underrating Sam in that moment. Um, but, yeah, I agree. I mean, Frodo has clearly misjudged his friends here um, and underestimating the strength of their friendship and of their character. Sarah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah, good. Um, right, Sharon, yeah, Mary actually having seen Bilbo's uh, secret, but actually having peeked at the Red Book is something that Frodo doesn't expect. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, and this dynamic between the age thing is a really important thing here. Um, Frodo is older, much older. I mean, he's he's fifty right now. Um, so so he's he's you know fifteen, sixteen years older than they are at least. Um, more than that, um, uh, he's more than twenty years older than Pippin. Um, he's almost a generation older than the rest of the hobbits present. Um, so there, that is an important thing to keep in mind. This is not just one sp one friend speaking kind of patronizingly um, to uh, to to. To his other friends, um, he and and it's another, it's one maybe kind of excuse that he has for underestimating them a little bit, um, that he doesn't realize sort of the strength of their resolution and that they're willing to do this. Um, but uh, but I think that that is an important thing to keep in mind here. That this is definitely like a senior person talking to junior persons who are his friends. I mean, you know, there's 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 you know, I'm not. Trying to say that they're not, um, they are not in a you know sort of an, an equal ways friendship, um, but they're not exactly equals. They're not in the same position, um, and I do think that that's that that's interesting to remember. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Yeah, see, Lisa, that's interesting. Lisa says, perhaps Hobbit bonds of friendship are stronger than Hobbit fears of adventure. Possibly. But remember, it's not universally true. Falco Boffin and Fatty Bulger don't want to come. Um, I mean, they're fond of Frodo and they're friends with him, um, but they're not ready to go off on adventures. Um, they are still part of this subculture. And I love the fact that we learn um, in The Return of the King when they return home that, you know, F Fatty Bulger was like you know, leading guerrilla resistance against the ruffians in the Shire. Um, you know, he still like is part of that adventurous subculture, and he's not he's not you know abdicating his position there by not coming along. But some of them will come, and some of them won't. You know, there is there is definitely a line there, and it's not universal. Um, and it's I think you know one of the things which clearly makes Merry and Pippin's um, friendship with Frodo, uh, really special. Um, yeah, I agree, Sharon. Mary is the, the sort of the most, he's the representative of that, of that uh, generation, of that sort of acting very unusually. As Sharon says, um, you know, he, he, he's curious about things, he spies, he plans, uh, you know, he's the one who has schemed and plotted the conspiracy. Um, that, you know, he is clearly the ringleader of that younger, younger generation. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, yes, good, good. Um, yeah, excellent. Okay, well, well I should, I should have said I don't want to spend too long, so I should, uh, I should run on, because the other, the, the one I, I would like to talk about even more, is to remember an important thing, this is Farmer Maggot, um, there are a couple things here. Well, l l let me read the passage, and then I'll ask my question. Okay, well, no, 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 wait. No, coming again. First, while I'm reading this, what I want you to be thinking about, what this passage is, of course, is what uh, we learn from Tom Bombadil about Farmer Maggot. And it ends with, with Tom Bombadil's words of praise for Farmer Maggot. So my first question is, after I read this is going to be, what is he talking about? Like, what exactly is he praising Farmer Maggot for? What have we learned exactly about Farmer Maggot 
from this passage. And then I want to be thinking about that in conjunction with what we actually see of Farmer Maggot when we meet him. Um, so, um, okay. So he already appeared to know much that is Tom Bombadil, of course, about them and all their families, and indeed to know much of all the history and doings of the Shire, down from days hardly remembered among the hobbits themselves. It no longer surprised them, but he made no secret that he owed his recent knowledge largely to Farmer Maggot, whom he seemed to regard as a person of more importance than they had imagined. There is earth under his old feet and clay on his fingers, wisdom in his bones, and both his eyes are open. Okay. He's uh, got... He stands on the ground and he's got dirty hands and wise bones and his eyes are open. Um, there... There it is. There's the high praise for Farmer Maggot. What does this mean? What does this mean? What have we learned about Farmer Maggot? Um, well, you'll notice we've also learned something about Tom Bombadil, which is that he does care about what goes on outside his land. The Shire is not in his, his land. He has this little patch of land that he lives in, that he has lived in for thousands of years, um, and but we, 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 one thing that we learn here is that he does care about what goes on outside it. He is not, um, he is not purely insular in that way. And clearly Farmer Maggot is not the only hobbit that he has talked to, because that's how he learned the history and doings of the Shire down from days hardly remembered among the hobbits themselves. Farmer Maggot didn't tell him all that, right? Other hobbits did. The predecessors of Farmer Maggot told him that. Um, now let's see. What do we see here? Okay. Um, okay, good. Jeff says he's practical and sees the world clearly. I think I, the, the practicality um, is, you know, the, the earth under his feet and clay on his fingers. I, I, I would agree in taking that. Um, his seeing things clearly um, and not being... Because um, remember, one of the things that we saw was a certain amount of blindness or ignorance. Remember those those conversations in the Ivy Bush and the Green Dragon. Re remember Ted Sandyman, even Gaffer Gamgee, right? Gaffer the Gaffer wasn't quite as bad as uh, as uh, as the old Miller, right? As Sandyman was. Um, you know, Sandyman was was ready to believe any sort of wild story. You know, including that uh, that you know Drogo and. Primula had murdered each other on the boat. Um, clearly because he's willing to believe that those crazy Bucklanders would, you know, like he's willing to believe even that of them. And remember what we talked about before, about how rare that would be, right? I mean, he's, he seems to be suggesting that they were the first murders in the Shire, in the history of the Shire, that anybody knows of. But you see, he's willing to believe that of, of those queer folk that live all the way over in Buckland. And even the gaffer um, is is, you know, will assert that the Bucklanders, most of whom he has never met before, um, and and in Buckland, where he has never been, he has never traveled that far. Remember, Sam has never traveled more than 20 miles away from Hobbiton, and that seems to be fairly common, so that when you are bound that geographically like that, when you have these narrow boundaries, when you live in these narrow little worlds, um, then you tend to be blind to these other things. He doesn't know about the Bucklanders. Um, Farmer Maggot is, does not, his, both his eyes are open. 
Um, and so I agree, Jeff, that's the direction that I would take that to. Remember, he's near the border, near the border of the Shire. And we learn here that he crosses that border and has talked to Tom Bombadil, because I don't think Tom Bombadil visited his farm. Um, so, uh, but anyway, he, he, that is Tom Bombadil, has taken an interest. So, so yeah, I think that that's, um, that's something that's something we can definitely see. Let's look at some some more things. Yeah, Giselle, the closeness to the earth is definitely um, is definitely the emphasis. I mean, in both of those first two of the four things that Tom Bombadil says there, the first two uh, are involved with that closeness to the earth. There's earth under his old feet, and that of all of them, right, seems like the most obvious statement. Like, what else would be under his feet? Right, he's standing on the ground. Um, but yeah, it does suggest he is he is connected with the earth in some sense. Um, yes, good. And Caden, I agree that, that the link between the wisdom in his bones and both his eyes are open. That he he is wise because he does he does watch, he does see things, he does he is sort of open to things and learns things. Um, yes, good. Um, yeah, Trish, I agree. Uh, it is interesting to learn not only, as Trish says, that he ha appears to have regular conversation with Tom, um, but he keeps quiet about it. Um, you know, that's that is that is very interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 you just asked this question. I don't think every indication that we have from Gandalf and Elrond um, is that Tom Bombadil does not leave his land. So I don't think that um, I don't. I, that that seems to me. I I don't see any evidence that Tom Bombadil ever leaves his boundaries. Um, so I think Farmer Maggot would have to have gone in to him, um, and. Tom Bombadil knows about the Prancing Pony, I believe, not because he's been there, but because I don't think he's ever been as far as Bree, like ever, in thousands of years, <laughs> he stays in his little land. But um, but he's heard of it, he knows of it, because he's talked to people who have been there. Um, so so again, that's that's Tom himself is sort of an interesting illustration, an interesting kind of counter-illustration. Nobody, in one sense, is more insular than Tom Bombadil. But... Um, but he's not completely disengaged. He he does take an interest clearly about both West and East. He he knows about Bree and he knows about the Shire too, um, and has clearly talked to people. Yeah, good, good. Um, yeah, Liza is Liza sort of putting it in another way, saying that he's he is grounded. Maggot is grounded, um, you know, with 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 solid values, not distracted. By by smaller issues, yeah, and I think you know I love the way that we see that in Farmer Maggot when he meets Frodo, right? You know where they, they sort of assume that he's going to be remembering the stolen mushrooms from a long time ago, and that you know he's gonna he's gonna uh, have his dogs to to show uh, to show Frodo off. Um, and instead, he immediately is going to you know is focusing on things. He hasn't forgotten that, right? But he is. Um, He's not nearly as petty as Frodo assumes he's going to be, right? Um, he's not nearly as much. He is so much more large-minded, um, and uh, is able to see. Okay, now there's something much more significant going on here. These people are in serious trouble, um, and uh, and is able to let all of that other stuff go. So I think that that's a really good illustration of uh, what you're pointing to there. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, 
Sharon's an interesting way to uh, way of putting it, and you know, Liza was sort of hinting at the same thing, that Farmer Maggot cares about the things that Tom cares about. Um, there is something, and again, that connection with the earth there, there's earth under his feet and clay on his fingers. He pays attention to the earth, right? He's a farmer, um, and he... Um, you know, part of that wisdom in his bones, perhaps, is is you know that he 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 pays attention to the earth. He notices things. Uh, he cares about um, about the earth and about growing things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, there there is a similarity there. I'm not sure that I would push it too far, just because Tom Bombadil's own relationship with his country is something that I think is easy to kind of make assumptions about that might not necessarily be true. Um. Yeah. A couple of you, Nate and Ed, have used the the phrase "earth spirit" to describe Tom Bombadil. Kind of. Um. I've never been really satisfied with that phrase as a full description of Tom Bombadil. Um, but we'll get to him and Goldberry in a little bit. I don't want to uh, I don't want to jump ahead too much. Are the barrows in Tom Bombadil's realm? Yep, they are. They are. They're there. Um, he has not left his realm to go there. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mike says, uh, what would Tom say about Grub Grub and Burroughs LLC? Um, uh, yeah, uh, they they are um, not quite the same as Farmer Maggot, are they? Um, that is, of course, that's the 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 uh, the the Hobbit uh, solicitors who are running the uh, estate sale of Bilbo's house at the end of uh, <laughs> at the end of the Hobbit. Um, uh, yes, I agree, Mike. That would sound that they sound rather different. Um, yes, good. Let's see. Um, yeah, good, good. Catherine points out that uh, that Farmer Maggot, or when Mary takes them across the hedge, he states that uh, Maggot has gone across. Um, you know, we, we we know that people go um, go through. Um, yes. Okay. Let me say this about Tom Bombadil and who he is. Several of you, when I was talking about Earth Spirit and how I'm not particularly content with that phrase, um, though I understand it, and I, it's not that I'm saying I think it's necessarily wrong, um, several of you uh, are wanting to... <laughs> That's funny, Ed. Um, you, when I said that, you typed... I put it in quotes, and then immediately, at, in this, at the, exactly the same moment, in the same minute, um, Nate uh, typed "Earth Spirit" in quotation marks, trying to defend it too. Uh, yeah, no, I totally, I, I totally hear you. I'm not, I'm not trying to make too much of that. In fact, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think it's in one sense, I think it's kind of fair. And then several of you are saying, you know, isn't he? And I know of some kind. Is he a Maya or something? Yeah, clearly. I mean, there's no question. But. Um, but I don't want to go there. Um, let me explain. 
It is possible, of course, to take the entirety of Tolkien's Legendarium, you take the Silmarillion and all of the other, you know, other unpublished stuff in the history of Middle-earth things, and you look at Tolkien's evolving understanding of his mythology and his world. Um, does Tom Bombadil have a place there? Yes. Could we define that place? Yes. Are we given clues from this text itself about where he fits in that place? Yes, I think so. Um, um, but... But, um, I, I mean, like, you know, we, we're, we're told he, he, what he remembers, he was there in his little patch of ground before the elves came across. That is, before the elves were on their way to Valinor in the First Age. But, but, um, what I want to focus on when we talk about Tom Bombadil and about Goldberry is how they are described and their role in this story. Um, because the fact is, Tolkien does not do much to place Tom within that mythology, and for very good reason, because it had never been published. Um, one thing that is important to keep in mind, it's not the only thing to do. Um, there are two things that you need to keep in mind at the same time when you're reading The Lord of the Rings. On the one hand, yes, of course it is good to know the Silmarillion, and knowing the Silmarillion and the, you know, the rest of the Legendarium certainly gives us a lot of insight into things in the Lord of the Rings that we would not understand otherwise. But we must also remember, sometimes Tolkien fans get so caught up in that perspective, um, that is, you know, have the Silmarillion right at their elbows and, uh, and are, are, are always very quick to use this stuff to fill in those gaps, as I, as I believe Tolkien wanted people to do. So I'm not saying that's anything invalid about that at all, but there's also another side. There's another thing to remember, and that is when Tolkien wrote and published this, he was writing and publishing it for an audience of people who knew nothing about his mythology, who had never read anything except The Hobbit. Um, now, he didn't want that to be. He wanted to publish The Silmarillion. I'm not saying that. Um, but in order to keep in, in order to try to get this story um, as it is being told, as Tolkien told it, it is important for us not to totally lose our grip. It's important for us to kind of back up from the legendarium stuff and um, kind of put that aside for a second and just take the Lord of the Rings on its own, which again is, is uh, other than The Hobbit, how... Uh, how the original audience would have had it remember for 23 years. It was published in 54, and it wasn't until 77 after Tolkien's death that the Silmarillion was published. For 23 years, this and The Hobbit were all people had. Uh, eventually the appendices, which gave them a little bit to work on. But, um, but that was all that they had. So I think that it is a... It is important for us to... And also... Tolkien's letters, and forget it for a second, forget it for a minute. Um, yes, he said lots of things about this, and I think his own ideas changed, and, they, and he emphasizes different things depending on who he's talking to. Um, there's lots of stuff there, and it's all really interesting to think about and keep in mind. But that, we can't let that totally distract us from what is happening here in this story, from looking at Tom Bombadil and the role he plays here and the way he's described, the way he talks, and how we see him act. Um, and that, I think, is um, is an important thing to keep in mind. Um, uh, uh, Nate, wasn't Tom Bombadil an existing... Uh, 
an existing creation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he he was in a he was the main character of a poem that Tolkien had written long before, uh, the Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Um, and there, by the way, there are several lines from these chapters, the Tom Bombadil chapters, taken verbatim from those poems, um, from that poem, I should say. Um, I, for instance, remember when Tom comes in and he uh, enumerates the things that are sitting on the table, the white bread and butter, the green herbs, yellow butter, uh, yellow honeycomb, all that stuff, right? In, that, in those words and in that order, that's a direct quotation from the lines in the poem which describe what was served at the wedding feast of Tom Bombadil and Goldberry. Um, so, absolutely, yes, they were... Uh, they were both Tom Bombadil and Goldberry existed before, and by the way, Old Man Willow and the Barrow Whites are also both in that original poem, um, as well as Badgers. But anyway, um, and uh, but again, and I debated, I I, I debated kind of uh, actually asking you to read the Adventures of Tom Bombadil and discussing those together, but I I, but I for exactly the reasons I've been describing, I decided not to do that. I want instead to be looking at the role that Tom Bombadil and Goldberry play in this story and how we are introduced to them here, how we are asked to think about them within the context of the Fellowship of the Ring. Can we back up and say, in Tolkien's larger mythology, uh, how do Tom Bombadil fit in? Yeah, he does fit in. Um, Tolkien was excellent at that. Um, uh, Tolkien was the master of retcon, the, the, that is retroactive consistency of going back and fitting things into this world he 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 absolutely he did that and could do that um and you know so is he an is he uh i knew yes yes he's an i knew um i i think that's again there's in in what, what else could he be um within tolkien's mythology as we see it in the legendarium but um you know and is he the character from the poem just sort of brought into the Fellowship of the Ring because Tolkien loved that character so much and wanted to include him. Yes. Does this episode stand out and is it seem, I mean, is, um, you know, does it seem kind of disjointed from the rest of the story? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Does it work? Yes. Do I love it? Yes. But it is a little bit disjointed. Um, does, um, you know, is, you know, Tolkien, didn't Tolkien say that Tom Bombadil is like, is the spirit of the Oxford countryside? Yes, yes, he did say that. Um, does that mean we're supposed to be thinking about Oxfordshire when we are reading these chapters? No, I don't think we are. I think if we read these chapters and we're just thinking about Oxfordshire, we're missing Tom's role in this story. He's no longer in Oxford. He's in the old forest now. He moved. Right? He was in Oxford before. Now he's not in Oxfordshire anymore. He's in the old forest. Um, his locale has changed. He's similar to it. He's like that. Um, but he's... Uh, um, but he's... Um, you know, he is, as Nate reminds us. He is, he is as you've seen him. And that's what I want to focus on, how we see him. Um, but anyway, we're getting all distracted from talking about Farmer Maggot. Um, but it's okay. I, I, actually, I do want to move on to the Old Forest anyhow. But one of the, the last thing I want to say about Farmer Maggot is I think that this is an interesting reminder. Um, we were speaking of Hobbit culture as if it were sort of almost entirely binary. That is, this sort of um, 
homogenous, um, you know, everybody, like, you know, there's this Hobbit mainstream culture, all Hobbits are all pretty much the same, except some of the Tooks, they're a little weird, um, and then there's Bilbo, and then there's the followers of Bilbo and those who listen to his stories, so then we get sort of the Bilbo subculture, but you still have, like, mainstream Hobbits plus Bilbo subculture, and that's pretty much it. Farmer Maggot is neither, exactly. Um, uh, he is a very representative hobbit in some ways, and Mike was uh, uh, emailing me earlier tonight about this, which I think is very right. He is um, seeing Farmer Maggot in his land. He is like the little king of his domain. Um, you know, Mike was making observations that, uh, you know, sort of the Farmer Maggot presiding over this, you know, this the, the sort of the daily feast in his hall and his, uh, you know, and, and uh, standing there with his dogs. And, you know, he is very, um, he's middle class. He's not a lord or anything, but there's something kind of lordly about Farmer Maggot in his land and his generosity, his hospitality to guests and, uh, uh, and, uh, and everything else. There is something kind of noble about him in that way. Um, but I think that actually in itself is is a very sort of Hobbit-like thing. We see, you know, a very... The, the, to me, the character who's most similar to Farmer Maggot um, is Farmer Cotton that we meet later on. In other words, you know, we talked briefly about how kind of benevolently anarchical Hobbit society is. They do have democratic, de democratically appointed leaders in a sense, but the leader's main job is to let everybody, um, you know, get on with running their own lives. Um, Farmer Maggot is the is one of the sort of ideal illustrations of like the self consistent um, Hobbit household. You know, he is he is the master of his little domain, and uh, he doesn't need anybody else to be in charge over him. Um, so I, I think that those are all those are all really excellent things to point out about Farmer Maggot. Um, but um, anyway. Um, so let's go back to uh, let's go back to Tom Bombadil. Um, several of you, um, several of you are really wanting are are still in, sort of insistent upon uh, um, defining Tom Bombadil in the terms of the larger legendarium. And again, we have some stuff to go on. Um, again, I say he's obviously Ainu because he can't be anything else. I mean, he's obviously not an elf. Um, he's obviously not any other. Uh, you know, uh, incarnated race. Um, he is. Um, he's he's okay, so he must be one of the. I mean, he's not one of the Valar. I mean, there's some people who are like maybe he's Orame. He's not Orame. Where's his horse anyway? Like none of the Valar are gonna live in a little patch of ground like that. Um, you know, so he's. Um, you know, but like exactly who he is, and you know, is he affiliated with one of the Valar, as many of the Maiar seem to be? That was certainly Tolkien's initial conception of the relationship between the Maiar and the Valar. That you have like the peoples of these, uh, you know, of the major Valar, and that idea still lingers uh, later on, though it gets much more diffused um, as Tolkien's legendarium goes on, or as he develops it. Um, but. Okay, here's how I would say it. At the end of the day, I don't think who exactly is Tom Bombadil is the important question at all. Um, I think, in a sense, it is almost... It's a very understandable question. It's a very natural question. But I think it's almost a question that misses the point. Um, he is... He is, right? He is as you have seen him. Um, and what we have to focus on is 
what he does. And, wow, see, I almost said what he represents, which sounds all very English teacher of me. Um, and that's, you know, it's, I, I, I don't mean that in that kind of a cold sense. I mean, what do we see of him? What does he do? Um, what does he... Um, what does he stand for? Not in the sense of, you know, again, like symbolism, as your high school English teacher might say, um, but what does he stand for in the sense of, like, what does he stand up for? What does he, what does he represent? Uh, again, not in the, uh, not, not in the, in the, uh, the, 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 the AP class sense, uh, but in the, um, in the, uh, you know, we are, we're here to represent kind of sense. What does he stand for? Um, what does he do? What is he about? What does he believe in? Um, and um, and I think we can see some things. What's your answer to that question? What does he, what is he committed to? What do we see him doing? Colorful clothes. That's what he stands for. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. See, Nate, that's interesting. Nate says, uh, obsessing over Tom Bombadil's exact nature is like debating whether Treebeard is really older than Kirdon or Galadriel. Interesting, but not necessarily relevant. Um, it is, of course, certainly true that the very nature of the world that Tolkien has created in his stories leads to these kinds of um, uh, trivia debates, right? Um, which ultimately are not really very fruitful and don't actually establish anything, and not to mention also often kind of miss the point. Um, that is, many of these things are ambiguous because they're genuinely ambiguous, because Tolkien often changed his mind or, um, you know, uh, uh, made mistakes even on occasion. Um, so sometimes there's actually not a definitive answer to these questions. But, but, but for me, the, the, the even more important thing is that sometimes it can, in fact, distract us from the story itself. Um, you know, this isn't an encyclopedia. This is a story. What is Tom Bombadil's story? What do we see from him? Um, Sharon, I agree with you. Sharon says Tom Bombadil um, stands for exuberance of life. Yes, Tom Bombadil is alive, right? He enjoys living. Everything he does, he enjoys, and he sings. He sings about it. His his singing um, is a is is sort of an expression of him, right? It's how he talks. Um, it's practically who he is. That's why he's always singing his own name, um, and he it's it's sort of the joy that he takes in things. Um, he does care for you know the welfare of his land. He is the master of that place, but um, he is... But I'm not sure that I could quite say that like what he chiefly stands for is... He's not like, you know, the Lorax who speaks for the trees. You know, that's not Tom Bombadil either. Um, um, and he does... Sort of, he does defend the hobbits from evil, but I also wouldn't say that his primary job is to hold back evil, because he doesn't. The Barrow Whites live in his patch, and he lets them. I mean, he kicks out the one, you know, he defends Frodo and the hobbits, but they're there. He could 
clean the Barrowites if he wanted to. Obviously, he has the power to do so. He can purge the whole thing. Um, does it all fall in his boundary? I'm not sure. You know, maybe he couldn't get 100% of them, but clearly some of them are in his patch, and he hasn't gotten rid of them. Old Man Willow. Old Man Willow, his heart is rotten. Um, he's evil. He does evil things. Tom Bombadil hasn't, hasn't uh, destroyed him. You know, hasn't taken him out. Um, he's Old Man Willow. He's been there for a long time. That tree is centuries old. Uh, and Tom has apparently lived with Old Man Willow for centuries. Um, Tom Bombadil is shockingly hands-off. Uh, his land, actually. Remember how um, Goldberry emphasizes, you know, when they say, oh, you know, when she says he's master, um, they say, oh, so do, do, do all the, you know, the, the, the trees and everything, this this whole land belongs to him? And she's like, no way, you know, no, no indeed. Um, all of the things belong each to themselves, and he lets them make their own choices, obviously. Um, but he's master. Um, I mean, he is, I agree with you, Trish, he is clearly anti-evil. I'm not trying to say that, uh, you know, that Tom Bombadil is neutral and doesn't care, you know, doesn't have an opinion between good and evil. He does stand against evil and for whenever it comes up, he does, def he does, you know, because he, if he were totally hands-off, why would he save them from either Old Man Willow or the Barrowites, right? He wouldn't. He would just let it happen. I mean, why, why would he care, right? Um especially since in both cases it was kind of of their own doing. That is, you know, they lost themselves, remember to use his term. Um, but, uh, but yes, that is not to say that he does, that he is not good, capital G, um, in some kind of objective sense, that he does not have values um, that are, that he does not, you know, hate evil and love good. I I think he does. You know, the way that he speaks of the Dark Lord is sad. Um, the sad thing that he... You remember that? I love that line. Um, a perfect example, by the way, of a line that people would have been entirely unequipped to understand, like would have had no, had no way possibly of knowing what Tolkien was referring to when they came to that wall by the road, um, which Tom tells them used to mark the boundary of a country. Um, and then there's that line that says, he seemed to remember something sad about it, but he wouldn't say. Well, what's sad about it is that used, that was the boundary between the divided kingdom of Arnor when the when the Dúnedain um, split up into three warring countries and drew lines um, and so, so ceased to be one unified kingdom of the Numenorians. That boundary was one of the boundaries caused by the civil wars among the Dúnedain in the north. Um, so yeah, it is sad actually, because that was sort of part of the downfall of, 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 of Arnor, a big part of the downfall of Arnor, was the internal divisions in that kingdom, and that's what that wall was. So yeah, it's sad. But again, they didn't know. They could learn about that when the appendix of the, of the Return of the King came out, but that was still several years away. Um, so again, but again, I'm pointing to that only because I do agree, we can see that Tom Bombadil cares about good, um, and opposes evil, and he seems to be, you know, pro Numenor, right? I mean, he 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 seems to be he seems to like the good guys and not like the bad guys, um, but it doesn't change the fact that he still has Old Man Willow as a neighbor, um, and also the Barrow Whites, um, yeah, yeah, good, um, yes, as 
Mike says he is comical and alarming. Um, and uh, Mike, I think, points to a really important word and a word which many readers understand. Um, he is uh, he is lusty, as Mike points out. Right? Yeah, with, remember that word is used when Frodo is looking over the downs and from the hill that he's standing on with Goldberry and uh, as they're leaving and says that he feels like he should be leaping as lusty as Tom um, over the hilltops instead of trudging down among them. Um, lusty has nothing to do with lust in the modern sense. It is, it, it is a completely non-sexual word uh, in this context. Um, lust in Middle English, uh, the old definition of lust with which of course Tolkien would have been very familiar um, uh, because he was a philologist and a student of language. Um, the word lust just meant desire. And the word lusty was an adjective that was often applied uh, to people just to mean that they are full of full of energy, uh, you know, full of like vim and vigor. I think both vim and vigor, not just one or the other. Um, and, uh, you know, full of the desire for life, uh, the desire for lots of things. Again, it's a totally non-sexual word. Uh, lechery was the word, the Middle English word, for what we use the word lust for. Um, lust was not one of the seven deadly sins. Lechery was one of the seven deadly sins. Lust just meant desire. In fact, the word lust in Middle English was often used uh, in religious treatises, talking about the desire for God. You know, there were many, you know, many monks very seriously writing about how you must have a great lust for God. Um, so that's that's what the word that, that's what the word means. He he is lusty. He is full of Full, you know, as Sharon was saying before, full of the exuberance of life. Um, uh, lusty is uh, is 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 very important there. Um, uh, yes, as Timothy says in German, it means delight or joy. That that is the root. That is the same word. It's it it, it is ultimately uh, in English a Germanic word. Uh, it's an Anglo-Saxon word too. Um, so yes, yes, those come from those come from exactly the same root. That is what Tom is like. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Good, good. Um, okay, let's see. Okay. Sorry, I'm just uh, scanning through some of the... I've been missing a whole bunch of comments, and I'm just kind of scanning through here quick. Um, Lisa is making some comments about his relationship with good and evil um, and his only intervening at need. It's complicated. Uh, I mean, yes. Um, you'll notice that two times he, he intervenes twice, and both times he intervenes when he's called upon. Um, he's not called by name the first time, but he arrives... Um, by chance, he says, um, when they're calling out for help. When Frodo, for some reason that he doesn't understand, is running down the path yelling, help, help, and Tom Bombadil comes. Um, and then, of course, they summon him by name and by the song that he teaches them later on. Um, and, uh, yeah, Michael uh, asks about what about his power over the ring. I, I think this, this is in the Council of Elrond, which we're not discussing yet, of course, but... Um, but 
uh, we might as well because I'm not going to open up the 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 <laughs> Tom Bombadil can of worms again when we get to the Council of El of Elrond, or at least I'll try not to. But um, but remember the correction that isn't it Gandalf, I believe, or shoot, who is it who says who makes the correction? I think it's Gandalf who says, you know, say not that he has power over the ring, but that the ring has no power over him. Um, he is his own master, and so Sauron cannot dominate him. Remember that the disappearance, the invisibility of the person who wears the ring is that this is not a magical power that is being granted to the wielder. The wielder, the wearer of the ring is being drawn into the spirit world, into the wraith world, when, uh, when that person is wearing the ring. And that's why they disappear. Tom Bombadil cannot be drawn in like that. He, he's, he, he won't. He can't. Um, I don't think Sauron is invisible when he wears the ring. Um, so, anyway, uh, that is back in the day when he wore the ring. Um, yeah. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, Jeff, I agree that he is more like a steward than a king. Um, so he has no desire for power. His being master is not about having power over things. Um, yeah, yeah, but but it's also about it's also about you know knowing who you are, um, and I think that his sort of coming back to this exuberance for life thing, I think that his the lustiness and joyfulness of Tom Bombadil is not just his most important characteristic. I think it is who he is. I think for me that's the answer to uh, the question of who is Tom Bombadil. Um, you know, and what is his function in the story? He is. He is all these things. Well, I want to come back to this because um, I think that we can see this illustrated. All right, all right. We're already we're already like neck deep in Tom Bombadil, so I'm going to change my plan. I had been wanting to talk about the old forest and about Goldberry first, but let's uh, let's not do that. Since we're already doing Tom Bombadil, fine. Let's jump ahead. Um, I, I want to look at these four verses. These are four different songs. I put them all on one page so we can see them all at the same time. Um, but they happen in quick succession. The first is the Barrow White's incantation. The second is the summoning song that Frodo remembers and sings. Um, the third is what we hear Tom Bombadil singing as he approaches, and the fourth is Tom Bombadil's verse when he comes in and is basically countering uh, the Barrow White. Um, so let's start with the second and third. Um, let's start with number three and then go to number two. Number three, this is what Tom sings not to banish the barrel white. This is just, this is the kind of thing, we've seen him sing this before. This is just what Tom does, is he sings this song. Old Tom Bombadil is a merry fellow. Bright blue his jacket is, and his boots are yellow. None has ever caught him yet, for Tom he is the master. His songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. Uh, you'll notice, by the way, that Tom Bombadil's songs are heavily rhythmical, though the rhythm is unusual. Um, it tends to start with the kind of uh, halting, to, with as a, a, well, okay, what in technical poetic terms we would call a spondaic foot that is two equally stressed syllables, 
bright blue his jacket is, and, th and then the rest of it goes in iams. His jacket is, and his boots are yellow. Notice that one ends with a with a similar um, sort of two verses. But anyway, that, that's very you know old Tom Bombadil is a merry bright blue his jacket is. Um, get out, you old white, as he will say. Um, Anyway, that's 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 a, that's a familiar pattern. You will also notice that his songs are heavily, um, are heavily alliterative. Uh, his songs are stronger songs, and his feet are faster. Um, anyway, bright blue his jacket is, and his boots. Um, anyway, so what do we see about him? So this this is you know if if any if there is any if there is a heart to Tom Bombadil's essence, it's in this song. Because this is what he's a. This is what we, you know, when you hear Tom Bombadil, you know it's Tom Bombadil coming because he's singing this. Um, this is his song about himself. He's a merry fellow. He wears very colorful clothing. You know, I often joke about you know like this crazy guy who sings about the color of his own clothing all the time. Um, but he's he, he talks about his his how merry he is, how brightly colored his clothes are. His mastery, none has ever caught him yet, for his songs are stronger songs and his feet are faster. So he, he, he talks about his strength, his strength and his swiftness and his mastery, his merriment and the bright colors of his clothes. Um, and yes, of course, as Mike reminds us, you know, the songs are magic in Tolkien. I mean, the, when he talks about the strength of his songs, you could say that Tolkien rarely uses the word magic, uh, but, uh, but yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Nate points out, um, he doesn't say that nobody has beaten him or defeated him, but that nobody has caught him. Um, yeah, that that is, I think, an interesting. Um, you know, he's not just talking smack, right? Like I've beaten everybody I've ever come up against. You got nothing. Like that's not. It's you know, none has ever caught him yet. For Tom, he is the master. Even the fact that he's speaking in the third person, um, you know, he alludes to himself by name. He's constantly using his name, Tom Bombadil. Um, yeah, good, uh, and. Uh, Yes, good. Uh, David points out that none has ever caught him yet for Tom. He is the master. That those are new words. We didn't hear those before. Before We've heard the, the bit about his jacket and his boots several times. We have not heard uh, that last thing yet. And of course, it seems quite appropriate in this moment when he is arriving in strength. Um, now look at number two. Ho Tom this is now remember this is similar to number three. Uh, number three is Tom singing about himself, his sort of spontaneous uh, description of who he is and what he's like. Number two there is the one that he teaches them to summon him. Um, and you know you, you summon things by their name. like I will teach you how to invoke me and how do you invoke him? Ho Tom Bombadil, Tom Bombadillo. so you sing his name and you sing his name in the same meter in which he sings his name. By water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, by fire, sun, and moon, hearken now and hear us. Come, Tom Bombadil, for our need is near us. What do we see here? Again, that first and last line are very um, similar. Um, that is, you know, calling him by name, asking for his help, 
come for our need is near us. And then the central two lines are invoking him by the water, wood, and hill, by reeds and willows, by fire, sun, and moon. The last three are especially interesting, I think. Um, by water, wood, and hill, by the reed and willow, those are all local things, right? Especially the reed and willow, reminding us of the withy window and everything else. Um, the sun and the moon are not local, right? That's not invoking Tom by anything in his domain. Um, yeah, but, uh, right, good, good. And as Nate points out, he's not invoked by things that aren't in his territory, like oceans or mountains. Um, but, uh, but he is, um, yeah, I agree, Timothy, of course, the fire is already a segue, and water... Yes, water is an element like fire, and so therefore is is not just localized, obviously, to him. But in the context, by water, wood, and hill, um, uh, that still has a kind of a local uh, a local feeling, I would say. Um, but again, my, my my point is that it moves beyond the local in any case. So even if we were to take that as strictly being local, um, the fire already is sort of uncertain sort of dubious as far as like what does fire have to do with Tom Bombadil's domain in particular sun and the moon definitely not um, in his domain um, yeah yeah um, yeah good Mike I agree very good the pattern there the earth below then the sky above in the second line um, Frodo is moving up and out in, in his invocation here um, yeah yeah um, yeah, good, and there certainly is a contrast between the water and fire, starting with wire, with water in the second line, and starting with fire in the second, in the in the third line. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, the sunlight and moonlight are in his domain. Yes, but that's it's not sunlight and moonlight. It's the sun and moon. I I, I don't want to push it too far, but I think that it's um, uh, I think that it's uh. It's sort of interesting. Yes, good, uh, uh, good, uh, Dime. The reminder that the hobbits did try to set fire to Old Man Willow. Um, yes, yes, they did, and so that we did see a fire. There was a fire in his realm uh, briefly, though. I think, if anything, what that reminds us of is, um, you know, what they were trying to do. That 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 fire was their small, feeble, and ultimately ineffective attempt to resist. Old Man Willow to stand up against um, these evil creatures who are trying to destroy them. Um, and, of course, Tom Bombadil is a great deal more effective uh, with that. Um, yeah, interesting. Sharon is pointing to the similarity between the bright primary colors of Tom's outfit and the basic elements that he's being invoked by here. Um, uh, fire and uh, fire and water, and I would suggest even sun and moon as these, you know, sort of fundamental elements of this larger world of which his little land is a part. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sarah, I agree. It's it's they're not exactly invoking as you, as, as Sarah says. You know, 
she says, I'm hesitant to say that they're invoking his powers or something similar, but I feel like the hobbits are respectfully calling out for Tom. Um, yeah, and also kind of recognizing his, uh, you know, the fa they're, they're listing all of these things that he um, is connected to. You know, if he has earth under his feet like Farmer Maggot, um, he's not just connected to the earth. Uh, he is also connected to the sun and moon. I mean, he's part of this larger, you know, he has this kind of mastery, which is not purely local, which, again, thinking in contrast with Farmer Maggot, right? Tom Bombadil in his domain is not like, you know, Farmer Maggot um, ruling over his land and his dogs and everything else. Um, he is... Um, his connection with the country and his connection with sort of the you know the cosmos as a whole is different, um, and he is part of that larger order. And I think that that's that's to me what the sun and moon sort of suggests or points to. I guess I would say, um, yeah, yeah, good, good. And yes, Mike points out the hearken now and hear us. Um, the the you know the us and not me that uh, Frodo is 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 making a collective plea, not just sort of speaking for himself, but speaking on the part of the rest of, of, of them. Good. Now look at verse one, at, uh, at uh, poem one and poem four. That is, look at the Barrow White song, and then look at what Tom Bombadil says to the Barrow White. And I want to do some contrast here. Cold be hand and heart and bone, and cold be sleep under stone, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails and the moon is dead. In the black wind the stars shall die, and here on gold here let them lie till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. And Tom says, Get out, you old white, vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing, out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. Come never here again, leave your barrow empty, lost and forgotten be, darker than the darkness, where gates stand forever shut till the world is mended. Now, what do you notice here? One quick thing that I notice, um, I love looking, I love poetry, I love looking at how poetry works. One thing that I think that is really fascinating to see here is you see how these poems work rhythmically. Notice that the Barrow White's uh, incantation is, to use the technical poetic vocabulary again, heavily enjammed. That is, one line runs into the next. You've got uh, several lines in a row um, conveying one idea. Um, uh, never more to wake on stony bed, never till the sun fails, you know, and especially the second half, in the black wind the stars shall die, and here on gold, here let, and still on gold, here let them lie, till the dark lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land. That's all one joined idea in those four lines. Tom Bombadil's lines tend to end Either you know, they're, they're short, his sentences are shorter, and uh, and his lines are more self-contained. There's very little of that running over. In fact, um, there's uh, there's only one I think significant moment of enjambment in Tom's poem, and that is when he's echoing what the what the white himself was suggesting. Um, Shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains. Those are the only lines um, which are 
um, which are connected, uh, which are enjammed like that. And again, he's talking about the the Barrow White going to going wailing out into the barren lands, um, as the Barrow White himself was singing about um, about the black wind that is blowing across and will kill the stars uh, and uh, and kill eventually the sea and the land and everything will be dead. Um, and Tom Bombadil is describing also. In a, a, a sort of implicitly, something like that wind moving across, but what it is banishing is the white itself, not life, not light, um, but the white itself. Um, now, so I've said a few things. Show me some other things that you notice here. Um, okay, let's see. Nate, I have always thought that too, that the Dark Lord here is Morgoth, not Sauron. Um, though again, um, that statement would have been nonsensical to the 1954 audience. Um, but it's interesting that uh, Tolkien does seem to suggest, I think that, I, I suspect this of being Morgoth that he's talking about here. Um, and no, the original audience would not have had any idea um, who that was. Um, and it's possible, it is possible that it's Sauron that he's talking about. Um, but, uh, um, but anyway, it's certainly something pretty absolute that he's describing. Um, yes, Mike, I like the never, never um, echo in the in the white song what is the what is the white singing about what is the point of his song what's he talking about um yeah yes Caden. yes you said the same thing about melkor that's good um yeah, Mike is pointing out that, you know, get out, you old white. That phrase, you old white, sounds almost childish, right? Uh, diminishing the threat, as Mike says. Yeah, good. Um, yeah. Death and dominion, says Jeff. Yes. Annihilation, says Trish. Death, says Timothy. Yes, definitely. Um, um, Yes, yes. And you'll notice this is an incantation. He's sing The audience of this is Frodo, right? Frodo and the rest of the hobbits. He's talking about them. Um, this, this, uh, and, and, and so one simple answer to that question, actually, is that this, his, his song is about the hobbits. Um, cold be hand and heart and bone. It's their heart, hands, and bones that he's talking about here, right? And he is, he is using, um, uh, he's using the subjunctive mood here. So he's saying they're, uh, they're, there, uh, no, it's not the subjunctive, but it's the it's the it's the imperative. Um, he's uh, he's making a command, right? May your you know your hand and heart and bone be cold, and your sleep under stone be cold. They're being doomed nevermore to wake. They're going to sleep forever on this stony bed on this beer. Um, they're never going to wake up till the sun fails and the moon is dead. And then, FYI. In the black wind, you know, at that point when the sun fails and the moon is dead, when the black wind, the stars shall die, and still on gold here let them lie till the dark lord lifts his hand. Um, in other words, and this is something I've I've said in other contexts, but the white is dooming. The, I mean, does this sound familiar? This life that he says they're going to be leading—that's his life. 
he is doomed to stay in this barrow until that time. Um, or, I mean, at least until that time, we don't know. Um, but basically, he has made them like him. He has dressed them in grave clothes. Um, and in uh, and not just in grave clothes, but in 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 the jewels from his hoard, from his tomb, uh, there. So you know he is he is basically assimilating them into the world of coldness and death that he lives in himself. Um, he is well. I, I think I think assimilating though. It, always makes everybody think of the Borg, is nevertheless <laughs> the right word there um, for what he's doing with them. Um, yeah, Caden, it is like he's turning them into whites. Will they become whites exactly? I don't know. Will they just die? I don't know. But, um, but yeah, certainly he is bringing them. It's not, it's, it's not nearly as... Uh, uh, the, the zombie apocalypse, Mike, is going to be a much more sort of uh, outgoing, fun-loving kind of experience than what the Barrow White is describing. Um, uh, the zombie apocalypse is much more kind of communal. Um, this is uh, this is uh, this is more uh, more creepily individualistic. Um, yes, Sarah. The essence of his evil is exactly he wants uh, a the hobbits. As Sarah says, he wants a the hobbits dead. B the world to fall into dark doom and despair. And C the dark lord Morgoth to rise. Um, yes. Yes, but there's a kind of bitterness in this. That is, it's not like what does he accomplish? Like, what's the point? What's he trying to do? He he's not doing anything. Like he's not taking the ring. He doesn't even seem aware of the ring. This is just what he does. He's already doing it with uh, with with Mary and Pippin and Sam. Um, that he is death, which just seeks to make other people like him. Now look at Tom. Yes, as I agree, Timothy, he is envious of their life force. Um, uh, and uh, good, good. Now look at Tom's response. Vanish in the sunlight, shrivel like the cold mist, like the winds go wailing. All that that wind that he was describing again. Tom picking up on his own imagery, the the white's own imagery, the coldness the darkness, in the black wind the stars shall die. And we have this idea of conquering darkness, right? This black wind is the darkness that's going to rush in. The sun will fail, the moon will be killed, the stars will die as the darkness, the coldness absorbs all heat and the darkness uh, overwhelms the light. Um, and Tom is here to remind him, the white, actually it doesn't work that way. Um, you know what happens to the cold mist in the morning? It vanishes in the sunlight. Once the sun is up, it's gone in minutes. It's just, it's not actually that powerful. Um, uh, like the winds go away. Yeah, those winds you were talking about. Yeah, why don't you go? Why don't you give it a shot? Why don't you? Uh, why don't you go rushing like the black wind uh, across the earth and see how that works out for you? Right. See how much light you end up putting out. Um, Go out into the barren lands far beyond the mountains, right? Um, that's you know that, that's that's what you want. Go, go go ahead, leave your barrow empty. Come never here again. Lost and forgotten be darker than the darkness, uh, where gates stand forever shut. He's being cast out into outer darkness, the darkness that he that he chooses, the darkness that he wants. Um, Tom reasserts life and warmth and light. Um, but he, you know, this is not like 
and the power of my light and warmth shall overcome the power of your cold. This is just, these are just, you know, it's sort of statements of fact that he makes. Um, I mean, he does make commands. His his songs are stronger songs, as it turns out. That come never here again, leave your barrow empty, turns out to be a stronger song that cold be hand and heart and bone. Um, but, uh, and, and, and of course, we can notice the final moments, the, the two uh, songs end in quite different places, right? Um, you know, till the Dark Lord lifts his hand over dead sea and withered land, uh, till uh, compared to till the world is mended, right? Tom looks forward uh, to the ultimate healing of the land rather than the ultimate destruction destruction of the land. Um, uh, oh, um, uh, Ed asks, uh, it says, according to Wikipedia, which is never wrong and knows everything, Tolkien was the first person, Ed didn't say that, I did, uh, Tolkien was the first person to associate the word white, usually meaning person, with the undead. Any ideas? Yeah, absolutely. He's not. Oh, that is, I mean, he is, but accidentally. He's not using the word white um, to uh, mean, like in the Dungeons and Dragons sense, a species of undead creature. Um, the word might, white means person. It's a very generic word which comes from Anglo-Saxon. It means like guy, do, person. Um, it's, it's a very generic word for um, a human being, a person, a fellow, a, a, a dude, a guy. Um, that's what the word white means. Um, you remember... Uh, um, them being in the two in the two towers uh, when Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas stand up and they were um, they were you know with their cloaks or had concealed them. Amir asks them, "Are you Elvish whites?" It just means like, "Are you Elvish people? Are you Elvish dudes? Um, are you elves?" Right? It just it's it's a very generic word. I told him I don't think his meaning white to uh, to be like a species of undead creature here. Um, they're called the Barrow Whites by the Hobbits. Um, who don't know what they are, but they're clearly dudes. There are dudes who live in those barrows, okay? There are, there are people who live in those barrows, and they are scary freaking people who live in those barrows. They're barrow whites, so that's what they call them, barrow whites. Um, and uh, so I get out, you old white, vanish in the sunlight. Tom is using the hobbit word, uh, that, you know, like what, what the hobbits call them. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, I don't think... Uh, now, of course, like, after Tolkien, um, the use of this song. Yeah, Trisha remembers where I was talking about this in the Halloween uh, episode that we did uh, last year. Grave Dude, yes, is the synonym for Barrow White. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, and, Mike, I do think that that is a fascinating comparison. Um, again, a comparison which uh, would have been utterly unavailable to any of the Fellowship of the Rings original readers, but I think that it is very interesting to see the way that these two songs work together and compare them to the account of the song battle between Finrod and Sauron um, in the Silmarillion, when the two of them fight. Um, and, of course, as Mike points out, this time the good guy wins. Um, and light and truth and warmth does trump uh, does trump evil. Um, we can see these things kind of going, going back and forth. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Giselle, yes, Tom banishes him to the void. Um, that is what I take by the, you know, uh, where gates stand forever shut. Um, 
he's he's telling him to be lost and forgotten where gates stand forever shut. Yes, I think that he is uh, um, he is he is sending him past the past the gates of night. There, he's he's gone. He's out. Um, yeah, yeah. And Nate, I agree. Aemir's words are an interesting coincidence because they, the Rohirrim, think of elves in the same way that the hobbits think of barrow folk. Yeah, they're like up there in the woods. They're like people up there, freaky people up there in the woods. Uh, so yeah, there there are there are these there are these uh, these these elvish whites up there. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and yes, Liza, um, that is where Melkor is banished. Um, does Tom really have the power to do that? Sounds like it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, um, yep. Yep. Um, but in a sense, notice that what Tom is doing is giving the white part of what it was asking for. That is, the white has chosen this darkness. It has chosen the same darkness. You know, it has chosen you know the Dead Sea and Withered Land, as the Dark Lord himself chose. Both, both, both of the Dark Lord, whichever it is, both um, have both chosen that. Um, and um, so, on the one hand, basically, he um, uh, Tom Bombadil is saying, like, oh, you know, you want to, you know, the cold, dark, death, with you. That's what you wrote. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, in a sense, he is giving him the white what he's calling out for. What he's, what he's not doing, what he's standing against doing, is the white bringing the hobbits with him. Right? The, the white is trying to draw the hobbits into that world, and that is what Tom is resisting. Um, and, you know, come never here again. Leave your barrow empty. Um, Tom clearly has the authority to do that. He cleanses this barrow, which is in his land. He can do it, and he does. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Um, let's see. Sorry, Sarah, I'm thinking about what you were saying here about sort of the white and what he is and his relationship with the ring, like... Comparing the Barrow White and the Ring Wraiths. It's tough. It's a tough question. There's some similarities, certainly. Um, and what I'm primarily pausing about is, again, my impulse. I don't know many people's impulse to answer this question is to immediately start referring to the other stuff that Tolkien told us about this in other places and other ways in which they can fit into the larger world that Tolkien has described. But, but I don't want to do that. What I want to do is instead I want to be focusing on this story. I want to be looking at the Barrow Whites, what we are shown of them here compared to the Wraiths and what we're shown of them. And I think that that's an important I think that's an important thing. I think that's an important distinction. Um, sort of the trivia of where the Barrow Whites actually came from is a little less important than the role that they play in this story. Um, and... Yeah, yeah. Um... Nate is right to say 
the whites are examples of one of several examples of evil creatures who don't have any interest in the ring. Um, the Balrog, Old Man Willow, Shelob, um, the, all of these are creatures that want to destroy things, want to consume things, um, but, but they're, not, they're, not, they, they're not interested in the ring. Remember that, uh, um, that line using the word that, that line from the Two Towers which uses the word lust in not exactly Tom Bombadil's way, but again in the, that non-sexual way, meaning desire. Remember when uh, the narrator is talking about Gollum and Shelob and says, but her lust was not his lust, right? Um, that is, she desires life uh, and to glut herself with the life of her victims, but she's going to cast the ring aside. She's not even going to notice the ring. Um, at least that's what Gollum believes, and so get it for himself. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, see, and here I'm pausing again. You know, Timothy says they're both undead. Yes, yes. Sort of. Sort of. The books are undead in the sense that they they do seem to be animated spirits. I mean, they are connected. They live in barrows, for crying out loud. They're associated with dead people and dead things. But the wraiths. Bilbo felt like butter stretched over too much bread. The wraiths have faded. Their butter stretched over an enormous quantity of bread—so much bread that um, that is. Did the wraiths die? Exactly. I'm not sure. I mean, in one sense, yes, but turned the sour off. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, that's not, I think, what we're being, what we're told about them. Um, so yeah, so they're not, um, they're not, they're not undead in that sense. Um, but I am not going to get drawn in. One thing that I was determined to do from the beginning. Many of you, you've been talking a lot about the 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 ring wraiths on the discussion board, and I've gotten several emails about ring wraiths, and I was determined not to talk about them tonight. <laughs> so you shan't draw me by comparing them to whites. Um, we'll talk about them next time, uh, because of course the ring wraiths are total non-characters in these uh, in these in the in the old forest chapters, which is sort of interesting. Um, in itself. However, however, oh yeah, no, okay, what I mean is, um, did they, like, there are living men given the nine rings of power. Did they live out their lives, die, and then rise from their graves as ring rings? And to that, I think the answer is no. Um, will, ring rings will eventually perish. Yes, when the when the ring is when the ring of power is destroyed.
exactly why my original plan had been to talk about Goldberry first and then Tom Bombadil second, but sadly, Farmer Maggot led us straight into Tom Bombadil, uh, and I was powerless to stop it. We'll see if we can sneak in a little Goldberry at least at the beginning of next time, and then. Uh, um, Well, let me leave you with two questions about Goldberry, and again, maybe you can talk about this on the discussion board. Here are my Goldberry questions. I sort of left you with some Gildor and Glorian questions last time, and I want to um, leave you with a, some Goldberry questions too. What does Frodo mean? When we are told, let me go back on my PowerPoint to which I will not get, um, when we are told when Frodo, when the hobbits see her for the first time, um, their reaction, um, how they feel about her. Looking at that third paragraph briefly, um, he stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices, but the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Marvelous and yet not strange. What does that mean? Marvelous and yet not strange. Less keen and lofty was the delight than the delight of elven song, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. How? Why? What is... And then my second Goldberry question is, why does this happen? Um, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard, Tom Bombadil's songs, is made plain to me. And then he spontaneously makes up a Tom Bombadil meter song. Suddenly he stopped and stammered, overcome with surprise, to hear himself saying such things. Um, wh why does Frodo suddenly chant? What, what is he singing about? Um, why does he do that? Why, why does Goldberry have this effect on him? Um, anyway, those are my two Goldberry questions. Uh, more, more. Um, a few of you have asked me to start a discussion thread on Goldberry. Sure, and I'll, we'll, we'll try. Think about that. Think about my two questions. Why, you know, what do we see in Frodo's song here? Why does this seem to fit? Why does this seem to be the appropriate response to Goldberry? And what does that mean? Marvelous and yet not strange. In what sense? What do we make of that? Think about that. I will come back to that at the beginning of next time. I hope we won't steal too much time from ring rates, which I assume we'll spend a lot of the rest of next time talking about. But we're going to talk about Glorfindel too, by golly. Um, so, uh, so we'll see. But anyway, think about it. Think about it, and, uh, uh, and we'll talk about that at the beginning of next time. Thanks, everybody. Good night. I will see you on Tuesday of next week. Have a good weekend. The organizer has ended the session, and this call will be disconnected.